0: Good morning, friends. Nice to see you all who are gathered here in the Temple of Light at Ananda Village. And good morning and evening to all of our friends watching from around the world. So it should be a wonderful time together for Inner Renewal. We aren't calling it Inner Renewal Week because we're combining toward the end with uh, a Kriyabon retreat, so it's an Inner Renewal Retreat and bond Retreat, mushed together into one great spiritual event that should increase the light within us and expand it throughout the world. And
1: I also want to welcome all of you. It's lovely to see friends gathered from Seattle and Texas and Palo Alto and Sacramento and Nevada City.
0: (laughs) India. India,
1: right. And um, our theme for Inner Renewal Retreat, as you probably are aware, is living in God's light. And we chose this theme and developed it in part in response to the conditions in the world in which we live right now where light is certainly being challenged for everyone, I believe. And so we're trying, and during the week, we'll have classes and meditations and kirtans and music and uh, many activities to help you understand how you can live more in God's light. So let's begin with a prayer, and then we'll have our singers.
0: Please stand. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Divine, Father Divine, Mother, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Friend, Beloved God Great, Masters, Great Masters, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ Babaji, Krishna,
2: Babaji
0: Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Swami Shri Yukteswar, Swami Shri Yukteswar Beloved, Guru, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Paramahansa Yoganandaji Saints of, all Saints of all religions We humbly bow to you all, we bow to you all. Beloved, Lord, Beloved Lord Help awaken in us, help awaken us the, awareness of thy light the
2: awareness of thy light
0: As it resides within us As it,
2: us,
0: as it enlivens everything in, the universe, as it everything in
2: the universe
0: And as it represents as it Thy presence. presence. Oh Peace. Peace. Amen. Amen. And we'd like to invite our singers. There's a long-standing tradition of starting Spiritual Renewal Week, or Inner Renewal Week, now Inner Renewal Retreat. It started many, many years ago when the theme of the week was on the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita starts by the two armies having gathered together and Krishna and drives the chariot with Arjuna in it between those two armies and then the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita is talking about the warriors, the major warriors on each side. And then all of a sudden there is a big clamor of noises. So the, the uh, Kauravas who represent the enemy, the dark side, um, they begin to make lots of banging on shields and trumpet sounds and so on. And the Pandavas respond by blowing their conches. Now the Pandavas represent, each one of them, Krishna and the five brothers, represent the chakras. And the conch sounds, and each conch is given a name, each conch represents the sound of a different chakra. And so the armies of the darkness are trying to make a lot of noise which Yogananda interpreted in a very interesting way. He said that when the mind begins to get quiet in meditation and the ego begins to be threatened by the quietness of that mind, it starts making bodily noises. The breath starts coming, uh, the heartbeat starts going faster, and so the bodily noises start up. And then to counteract that, we need to have the inner call of the sounds of the chakras to, to, to balance that out and to draw us inward. So we begin with that explanation in a renewal week each year since that time with the blowing of a conch. couple more days to follow our other tradition, which is to hear me flub one of those <laughs> attempts at blowing a conch. But we still have time, my friends. So as Davy said, the theme of the week is living in the light. Today, we're going to talk about the light of sadhana, uh, increasing the inner light through sadhana. Tomorrow, we will talk about sharing that light through service or seva. On Wednesday, we'll talk about um, the sense of discipleship or self-offering, offering offering the little light that is within us into the greater light of God. On Thursday, there will be a panel talking about um, attunement with the guru, a panel of different speakers, talking about their personal experiences and the ways that they uh, live in attunement with the Guru. And then, on Friday, we will start our Kriya retreat, and so we'll talk about the light through uh, Kriya Yoga. So those are the themes. Now, one might ask, is light used in this way a metaphor, or is it real? You know, as they sang, Thy light within us shining. Is there a light within us shining, or is that just a metaphor? I think a doctor would say, well, it's a metaphor. I know that if I have to go in for an operation, let's say with an arthroscopic operation, I have to bring my own light, because there isn't any light inside the body. Light comes from outside. It's quite obvious. Well, I think the other ways of using light would be to have it stand for the consciousness of God. So that's inside the uplifted, expansive sense that we have when we live in God. That comes from inside. Uh, In fact, Swami Kriyananda uses in uh, his description in uh, Education for Life, talking about the various levels of consciousness, he talks about that in terms of specific gravity, and the sattvic level, or the high expansive level, he calls the light, light consciousness, or the light personality, light-hearted, we say when when somebody's uplifted and happy. So, obviously, it is a metaphor, and it's used in a variety of different ways in order to describe A state of consciousness, or or an expansion. But, interestingly enough, it isn't only a metaphor. It is also real, and throughout the autobiography of a yogi, there are many, many references to light, and in magical ways, or semi-magical ways. If you're a doctor, you think they're magic. I shouldn't say that. We've got wonderful devotee doctors. If you're a materialist, you think that they are, uh, that that these are apocryphal stories. But I just want to read a couple of them to remind us. So this is Master at age eight, and he has a very serious illness, and he looks like he's dying. And his mother, who is a devotee of Lahiri Mahashaya. And they've got a picture of Lahiri in their meditation room and and in his bedroom now. Uh, The mother of Mukunda, Yogananda at that age, says, mother says, bow to him, Lahiri, bow to him mentally. And master says, I gazed at his photograph and saw there a blinding light enveloping my body in the entire room. Mother says, O omnipresent master, I thank thee that thy light hath healed my son. Master, I realized that she too had witnessed a luminous blaze through which I had instantly recovered from a usually fatal disease. So there is light coming out of a photograph. Um, Also, when Yogananda went back in 1936, from America went back. He was, of course, in uh, Calcutta at during much of that time, and his relatives were there, and they were begging him, "Oh, give us a spiritual experience! Give us a spiritual experience!" So, uh, his his grand uh, his nephew tells the story that finally, Master said, "Well, all right," and uh, I think two of his sisters and. Uh, another relative. He had them come into a room, and the the boy at the time, Hare Krishna, was a boy at the time, about 16. He wanted to see what was going on, as a typical curious 16-year-old would do. So he went and he kind of snuck a peek, and Master uh, leaned forward and touched each of them on the spiritual eye. Later, they described having an overwhelming light experience come over them. But interestingly enough, Hare Krishna, the 16-year-old watching, saw the whole room become filled with light from that. So that light that we're talking about is actually real, and there's a, a experience of it, not only subjectively, that we have within ourselves, but also objectively that other people can have as they see that. Another uh, later on uh, master uh, was with, this is the story from their autobiography which you'll remember from, it's only another Khrusha away, another Croatia. Well, during that time he visited a great saint, Ram Gopal Musamdar. And if you'll recall, he tried to, Um, go to sleep, and this is, as he wrote in the autobiography, around midnight, Ram Gopal fell into a silence, and I lay down on my blanket. Closing my eyes, I saw flashes of lightning. The vast space within me was a chamber of molten light. I opened my eyes and observed the same dazzling radiance. The room became part of that infinite vault which I beheld with interior vision. Why don't you go to sleep? Sir, how can I sleep in the presence of lightning blazing whether my eyes are shut or open? You are blessed to have this experience. The spiritual radiations are not easily seen. So those radiations are not easily seen. But this week we're going to talk about how we can see them because it's it's a very, very important subject. And then I'm just going to end with this quote. This is, uh, again, from Autobiography of a Yogi, and it's in the chapter, The Law of Miracles. The masters who are able to materialize and dematerialize their bodies, or any other object, and to move with the velocity of light, and to utilize the creative light rays, in bringing instant visibility to any physical manifestation, have fulfilled the necessary Einsteinian condition. Their mass is infinite." Um, I won't go into that. You can reread that if you want. The astral body is not subject to cold or heat or other natural conditions. This is Sri Akteshwar describing. The anatomy includes an astral brain, and six awakened centers in the shishumna, or astral-cerebral-spinal axis. The heart draws cosmic energy as well as light from the astral brain and pumps it to the astral nerves and body cells, or lifetrons. Astral beings can affect their bodies by lifetronic force or by mantric vibrations. So Here he's describing, this is in the chapter, The Resurrection of Sri Yukteswar, where he's describing life on the astral plane and what it's like. So he's describing here the astral body. Don't fall into the delusion that the astral body is what we get once we go to the astral plane. We already have that astral body. That body functions within us all the time. And that same those same life trons are keeping our physical body alive. Now, the physical body, as the physical senses, act primarily as a kind of a curtain or a blockage from us being able to perceive finer realities. And so, most of this week, and especially today, is going to be focused on the fact that we have these finer realities already existing within us. And one of the main purposes, if not the main purpose of sadhana, of any spiritual practice, is in order to remove whatever curtains or veils that block our ability to perceive ourselves as we really are. And when we get into... Um, talking specifically about sadhana will talk about how our sadhana works specifically to help withdraw the energy, uh, works with pranayama, to withdraw the energy, control it, and withdraw the energy from the senses in order for us to be able to perceive in a finer way the realities of the universe around us. Now, we sit here today and we look around and and we think that what we see is what you get. What What you see is what you get. So the reality is and truly is for the materialist what he can, he or she, can perceive with their senses. And then by extension, we have instruments that can extend the senses a little bit. So that uh, you you have a microscope, and that allows you to see little things. And you have a telescope, and that allows you to see uh, things that are far away, and uh, various instruments. But the senses and our conscious mind perceive not reality in its total, they receive they perceive not even what I would say is you, you've all heard you know the tip of the iceberg where uh, the tip represents a seventh, and the rest of the iceberg is underneath so that you can't see it, so the tip of the iceberg is what we perceive through our senses. I wouldn't say even the tip of the iceberg I would say the most recent snowfall on top of the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> That's about how much we actually see. And the rest of it, we, we either don't perceive at all, or our minds make it so that we aren't aware even if we're able to perceive it. What do I mean by that? Well, let's do a little experiment. Simple. From the time that you were born until this very moment that you're sitting here, your heart has been beating. It's probably been beating about once a second, let's just say roughly, from that entire time, from the very moment that you were born. How often have you been aware of the beating of your heart? Now, just as an experiment, you can feel it very easily if you bring your can you feel your pulse there? So so that's part of the easily perceived reality that we're simply unaware of because we don't pay attention to it. So one way of having just the snow on top of the iceberg is that we don't pay attention to the vast majority of what's around us. But that's easy to feel now. I think most of you or all of you know Jyoti Mudra. Bring your hands up and listen to the sound in the ears and try to see light. Okay, I think probably most of you were able to do that. Now those are realities that again are constant within us. But we simply don't pay attention to them. And if we do and withdraw our energy just a little bit, then we can perceive them. So the world is filled with forces. This room is filled with cosmic energy. Every channel of television or radio that uh, is strong enough to send its signal here, all of those Signals are going through this room, passing through us and around us all the time, and we're simply not aware of it. So the world is full of hidden forces that that we just don't perceive. So I thought we would have a little fun time by looking at the forces of magnetism. So yesterday we did a video with the help of Shama and Dian on magnetism, so we'll see that. I haven't seen it yet either, so this would be fun, I hope. So as I was saying earlier, we're surrounded by many, many forces, hidden forces, that we simply can't see. Often we can't feel them. They aren't something that works with our senses, but they affect us very deeply. Now with yoga, and especially with meditation, one of the primary things that we're trying to do is to become aware of these hidden forces. And once we're aware of them, then we can begin to control them. And that will help lead us toward spiritual growth. So what I would like to do now is do a little simple demonstration of the principle of magnetism. So, now I would like to demonstrate the different strengths of magnetism that people typically have. Let's start with a relatively weak-willed person, somebody who hasn't accomplished and isn't able to accomplish much in life. For that person, I'm going to use just a typical refrigerator magnet. And that person is able to have a little bit of magnetism. They can attract a little bit to themselves, and, but not very much. Next, I'm going to use a magnet that would represent somebody who has a lot more willpower, somebody who is successful, perhaps in business, perhaps in the ability to get through school and so on. For this, I'm using a stronger magnet. And, as you can see, That person is able to attract considerably more to himself. And finally, I'm going to demonstrate what happens when you work on your willpower, work on your magnetism. So let's call this person the Creobon magnetic person. So for this, I'm going to use this magnet, and there's the Creobon magnetism. So, As you can see, there's a reason why we practice these spiritual teachings. Now, I want to demonstrate one more principle. For this, I'm going to need one more prop. Now, the principle I want to demonstrate now is something that we have always heard. We've heard the principle of one moment in the company of a saint can be your raft over the ocean of delusion. The reason for that is that a saint magnetizes us with spiritual consciousness. To demonstrate that, I'm going to take this typical screw and show you that it has no magnetism at all. It can't pick up anything. But now, one moment in the company of a saint, being able to be with that saint, even for a single satsang. Let's see what happens now to that unmagnetized piece of iron. It has a little bit of magnetism. Just from that very, very small time in the presence of a saint. Imagine what would happen to someone who spends their entire life in the presence of our avatars. God bless us all that we have them. I'm just going to spread some iron filings here. These are just iron filings that in fact I got from our local blacksmith. Those of you who live here know who that is. So let's consider these iron filings as our blacksmith's old karma. Now we're going to show what happens with these different kinds of magnetisms that we've been talking about. First, I'm taking the weak magnet, the refrigerator magnet, and I'll place it under here. And you can see that it has a little bit of magnetism. Then I'm going to take that second magnet, and I will place it under, and you can see that there's a lot more magnetism with that. That's the person, remember, who is able to succeed in life. And now I'm going to show you the magnetism of a bond And look how he is able not only to magnetize his life, but how everything around him begins to point Let's call it to his spiritual qualities. Now, this is just a fun demonstration. So I'm going to show you, I have arranged six magnets along a line. And I'm going to say that those are our chakras. And so this is our chakras before we have done Kriya. You can see there's a little bit of movement here, right? Now, let's look at our chakras after we've done Kriya. So I just wanted to reaffirm the power of these spiritual techniques that we have. Each one of our techniques is meant to not only awaken prana, which is the energy flow that magnetizes everything, but to allow us to control it. And so these different demonstrations have shown just visually how we can get in touch with those hidden forces that lie within each and every one of us through our spiritual practices. God bless you. So that turned out to be fun, huh? <laughs> Even with the massive uh, production budget that we, <laughs> that we had for it, and without Steven Spielberg, who did not agree to direct it. We were able to pull it off. So, the point being that we have both around us and within us many, many hidden forces that, that we don't see with our senses, we can't perceive with our senses. Even this, we weren't seeing the force field of the magnetism, we were seeing the effect of it. So it, the force field itself, the magnetic lines, um, attracted the iron filings in the pattern that it did. So, Master, we could give a whole week's course on magnetism alone. Master talks about it a great deal. Each of our chakras has a particular kind of magnetism. Uh, Each has a different magnetism. The top of the spine, the bottom of the spine have a magnetic pole. Each chakra, one to the next, has a positive and negative magnetic pole. You move up, the next becomes, and so on. So that hidden force, but without having to dwell down, because it's obvious that there are these hidden forces, let's move on to sadhana. And why sadhana is so important to our spiritual lives. What I didn't have and didn't have the equipment for was to show the property of electromagnetism. And that, that shows the energy even more clearly in the sense that when you have a mag, uh, an electricity flowing through a wire, it creates a magnetic field around it. And so the energy flowing through, call them the wires of our nerves, creates a magnetic field. The astral energy in our chakras creates a magnetic field. And so those magnetisms have the property of attraction. When we're weak-willed, we don't attract very much. We don't attract ideas. We don't. If, if the energy is not directed toward our spiritual life, We don't attract a great deal of grace from God in order to uh, supplement that. But now come back to our spiritual path and the techniques that we have. First of all, the techniques are all designed. Each and every one of them are designed in order to help us become aware of the flow of energy start with the energization in the morning. I hope you all start with energization in the morning. If you don't, you're missing out on 20% of our spiritual path. So you can take it or leave it, but I prefer to take it. So that teaches us, we send the energy to and um, withdraw it from the various parts of the body. That teaches us to become aware of, and in control of using the will to send and withdraw the energy from from wherever we want to send it. Um, Then we move on to Hong Sa. Hong Sa is meant specifically to begin to allow us to take control of the prana, in the subtle spine. Remember, we've got that astral body already residing within us. In fact, you could really say that we are more the astral body than we are the physical body. We don't think that way because our senses allow us to perceive the physical body, but really we're more astral beings than we are physical. Sri Yukteswar said the physical world is like a, the little wicker basket that hangs underneath the vast hot-air balloon. And so our physical body seems more real because we're sitting in that wicker basket and unable to perceive the big balloon above us. But our astral body is, is much larger or, or more powerful and our physical body. So these techniques are trying to get us to be aware of these subtle energies just as that demonstration allowed us to become aware of the forces that of magnetism as we with our consciousness as we do these techniques we become more and more aware of the the various Subtle aspects that reside within us and so By doing Hong saw because the flow of energy the willpower the mind and prana are all tied together With the breath we concentrate on the breath virtually all techniques of meditation whether you're talking about mindfulness If you read about mindfulness, it starts with talking about observing your breath or watching your breath. Almost all meditation techniques start with that because that's the essence. That link between breath, mind, and prana uh, is at the heart of the science of yoga. And so by observing the breath, we begin to be able to feel it, feel those those inner energies. Now, why don't we feel them all the time? You can't even feel your heartbeat most of the time. Most of the time you aren't paying any attention whatsoever to these subtle energies. So in meditation, we attempt to put aside uh, the distracting energies of the senses and the outward pull and we sit quietly and simply observe the breath as you observe the breath and use the mantra along with it Hong saw mantra mant- That mantra works in the subtle spine. Remember it's it said in this uh, uh, astral beings can affect their bodies by li- lifetronic force or mantric vibrations Hong Sa is a mantric vibration. And by using that, we are uh, beginning to get control of that energy. Master, when he was a young boy, uh, at age eight, and around that time, he would practice Hong Sa for eight hours at a time until he could go breathless. Even before he left, he left home and met, met his guru, um, we were told by the grandson of his, his dear friend, uh, Tulsi Bose, he lived much of his teenage years in the Tulsi Bose home. Tulsi and Master would go in to a little room along with their Sanskrit uh, teacher and they would meditate there and they would go into Samadhi and they would levitate And uh, as a teenager, and so he was working with these subtle forces, but it started with him working with Hong Sa. That's where he started, because that allows us the the concentration, the uh, awareness always precedes control. If you aren't aware of something, you can't control it. So becoming aware of the breath, and then aware of the energy uh, here uh, of the breath, here near the spiritual eye, we begin to become aware of also the inner energy and the inner light. Then, of course, we move on to the whole science of Kriya Yoga, which is absolutely, specifically meant in order for us to try to feel and control those inner energies, the flow of prana in the spine. Those of you who don't have kriya yet, by all means work toward it, because it allows you to begin to uh, work with that finer energy. Well, so what? So now we're able to feel the energy. We can feel energy with our hands. We can rub them together. That still doesn't accomplish the job. But what it does by being able to begin to be aware of these subtler forces and starts with the subtle forces within us, we become aware of the subtle forces that rule the whole universe. Magnetism on a physical plane, magnetism on a spiritual plane, consciousness on a mental plane, uh, the brain science and all of that, but consciousness beyond the body because consciousness doesn't arise from the brain. So with the senses, what we do is we become locked into the world of the senses and of the mind, which interprets those senses and, and works with them, and that's the conscious level. And we function on that level, but if we stay there, we stay only on the snow on top of the top of the iceberg. We don't become aware of the rest of our reality. So what sadhana really is trying to do is uh, the techniques of sadhana are the things that build the bridge between outer awareness and inner awareness, and as we get the um, deeper and deeper into the sadhana, then we become more and more aware of the inner realities, of subtle realities, and we move from conscious level of functioning to superconscious level of functioning. Superconscious level has intuition as its base line one might say it's fundamental way of perceiving the world and and as we move toward that superconsciousness we begin to perceive vastly different realities than we can with our conscious mind and with our senses so the the autobiography of a yogi is filled with stories Why does Master have so many stories of miracles? Why does he have, uh, uh, you know, the experience of cosmic consciousness and, and talking about light radiations and so on? He's trying again and again through this way and that way and this story and that story and this example to get us to understand that there are subtle realities that already reside within us that are part of our actual makeup. And if we want to perceive ourselves as spiritual beings, as as vast as we really are, we have to become aware of these um, subtle realities. So one could define our spiritual path as becoming aware of the subtle realities within. And as that gets subtler and subtler, it also gets vaster and vaster until we become aware of our unity with God. So that's what our sadhana is meant to do, is to take us from outward, unaware, not paying attention and not feeling any of these subtle realities, to quiet the mind, to quiet the body, to come within, to control the prana and ultimately, through the control of prana, you go on to the next stage of Patanjali, which is, Master called it, shutting down the sense telephones. If we can get to the point in meditation where we shut down the sense telephones, that's when the mind becomes really fixed and we're able to really concentrate. Then we, one could say, in one way, it's at that time we go into a superconscious state to perceive these subtle realities and our own subtle reality. Patanjali calls it dhyana, uh, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. That those last three stages that follow after the control of prana and the withdrawal of the life force from the senses. That's when we begin to to really experience these things. So. The daily sadhana that we do is really, really important if we want to perceive ourselves as we really are, as extensions of God. And unless we do that, we're not going to get to, to the point where we perceive it. And sometimes you can hear stories of, of people who kind of spontaneously go into uplifted states, And you might get the idea, well, I'll just wait around until I spontaneously combust. (laughs) Well, good luck staying warm at night, putting wood in the stove and waiting for it to spontaneously combust. You know, it just, and besides those those people that that happens to, they had lifetimes of preparation for it. So we've got to do the work. We've got to do the sadhana and our sadhana specifically is through the techniques of pranayama and the inward withdrawal of energy until we can get our minds deeply focused and that's when these subtle energies begin to become apparent to us and to open up to us. So I'll end there, because we're going to talk about other aspects of um, the techniques. But there's another aspect to our sadhana, and that's the sadhana that we have when we're not meditating. Because the sadhana that we have for the other, whatever they are, 16 hours a day, that better be active, too, or we aren't going to get very far. And so what does sadhana outside of meditation look like? Basically, it is the variety, one could call it a basket of techniques or practices or attitudes that keep the mind coming back to God. Keep the spotlight of my mind ever keeps turning on thee. In the battle din of activity, my silent war cry will be God, God, God. So anything that we do during the day that brings our mind back to God is going to be part of our sadhana. We can do inner inner chanting, we can do mantra, we can practice the presence of God, feeling that God is our companion uh, around us, doing things with us, helping us, uh, always there. As we do that, our mind begins to become aware of the fact that these things that sound like maybe they're not very real actually become real. So that if we stop and we pray or we stop and we feel our connection with Master before we do something, we will actually feel and it gets clearer and clearer. We'll feel his inner guidance, either directing us and blessing us or warning us and telling us not. And as our intuition develops, then we begin to be able to make the proper choices in life. So all of that, all of those techniques and attitudes of turning our mind toward God is very important. But one might call that, so we've got two two parts to our sadhana, meditation sadhana and out of meditation sadhana. So in this out of meditation sadhana part, what I've been talking about, one might call that the outer way of practicing the presence of God. But there's an inner way. I wanna read from Master, Uh, First, first from Swami, because he talks about this um, in an article. There he talks about the um, practicing the presence of God, and as I say, usually it it's kind of God is with me. He directs my thoughts. He's helping me. He's my companion. Swami said, "There's another, more inward way. Chant Om mentally at each chakra." in upward sequence from the base of the spine. Direct the energies in those chakras up the spine by mentally gazing, as it were, at the point between the eyebrows. So practicing the presence is like having God beside you. Directing the energy to the spiritual eye is like having God inside of you. And it's much more powerful. Um, I'm going to end by reading this quote from Master Davy may read it, too. It's something that we recently got and um, sent to us, and it's very, very powerful. So we'll refer to this during the, the classes and today. Master says, you don't know how great that initiation is. He's, and he'll talk about the initiation. I live in that consciousness all the time. You explode these two tunnels, meaning the inner tunnels in the Shishumna, by constantly going up the, and down the spine, mentally chanting Om at each center, and by the practice of Kriya. First you will feel that light in the spine. Then you will see it. Then, when you can explode those two tunnels, your astral body can get out. The great work now before us is to practice Kriya and going up and down the spine, chanting Om at each center. In that way, you will gain more than reading all the books. Practice going up and down the spine and get acquainted with those currents. Now that is a powerful statement. So that is the real way to practice the presence of God. And since... I received this We Somebody sent us to it as a result of a meeting we had about three weeks ago. Since that time, I've been practicing during the day as well as in meditation. Sometimes I'll wake up at, in, night, in the night and I'll practice this. Just go up and down the spine, chanting Om at each chakra, trying to feel that chakra and go up and down, up and down, and it will bring the awareness of those centers, the awareness of that subtle energy, and the awareness of the presence of God, who is our own true self. It will bring that from unawareness and passivity to a dynamic reality in our lives. And that is the goal of the spiritual path.
1: Well, one might wonder what is left to be said, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to find something. First of all, I'd like to focus on the phenomenon of light. What is light? And we think we understand it by what we see with our eyes, but as Dratisha's been saying, there are subtler forms of light And so let's start with looking at how the scriptures, how the Bible talks, speaks of light. And we'll go to the very beginning, Genesis, where it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was void. And he said, Let there be light, fiat lux, in Greek. And so what they're saying is, in the beginning, there was just the void. And Master said, God's first command to order the universe to form creation was, let there be light. That's how it all started. And that's the underlying reality of it all. So we think there's the world of light and shadow But there's also the world of ultimate, absolute light. And this is what we're talking about today. Farther on in the Bible, in St. John, it says, there was a light that shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So here we're not, again, we're not talking about, oh, the sun's going down, it's getting dark, I better turn on the light. We're talking about consciousness, because this light through which God manifested all of creation is conscious. It isn't just a reflection of the moon or the sun. It's conscious force. And the darkness, which puzzles at this light, what is that light that's shining in the midst of me? You know, I always... I love reading about uh, ancient archaeology and discovery of tombs and so forth, been fascinated by King Tut's tomb and the discovery. And you know, that tomb was in absolute darkness for thousands of years. And then the famous archaeologist Howard Carter, he figured out where that tomb was, and he drilled a little hole. And the light entered that tomb for the first time. And the people, his assistants, were all saying, what do you see? What do you see? And he said, wondrous things. And that's what happens when the light shines in the darkness for the first time. And that's a metaphor for our own life, is our own consciousness. Because we have that part of our consciousness that is in the darkness, that doesn't understand the light. When I first attempted to read autobiography of the Yogi, I just thought this can't i 'm sorry to admit, but it 's true maybe it'll help you this can't be real there isn 't miracles and light, and little by little, I started years, decades, lifetime. You know this is more real than the the tangible what's seemingly tangible world, so the the part of our consciousness that doesn't understand the light, that rejects it, and not necessarily fights against it, but just doesn't understand what that light within us shining is. That's why we need sadhana. And Swami said, to understand the light within us, we have to raise our consciousness to the light. And so we keep talking about raising the energy because the higher centers of awareness are to to be found in the upper part of our nervous system, the spiritual eye, the crown chakra, the brain. And so by raising the energy, we can begin to perceive it. And just as Master would look at his disciples, because he lived in that light all the time, and he said, I see you all as beings of light. You have no idea how beautiful you are. And just as in the early years of Ananda, Swami Kriyananda would walk into a room with us newbies, new on the path. And he would say, good morning, all you great souls. And we would look around to see who had come in. (laughs) But he was talking to us because he had raised his consciousness, and he saw the light within us, that we couldn't see, and we didn't understand ourselves. But that's, with sadhana, little by little, we develop that ability. And the autobiography, Jatish and I just had a period of seclusion in January, and I really read for the, I don't know how many times I've read the autobiography, but my experience is, and I would guess it's yours too, every time I read that book, I come to a new paragraph. That that wasn't in the book the last time I read it. This must be a different version. It's just that the light didn't come, the darkness didn't comprehend the light. I didn't understand it. So I might have read the words, but they didn't mean anything to me. I didn't feel them inside. But the theme of light and becoming one with the light, one might say that's the main, one of the main themes in autobiography. There are a number of them, but that's certainly got to be one of the main ones. And when Jatish told the story of little eight-year-old Mukunda being healed of deadly Asiatic cholera. I love that phrase. I don't know why. It's just very dramatic. But, and then shortly after that, little Mukunda says, I was sitting on my bed meditating after my healing from Lahiri Mahashaya, and I, the question arose in my mind, what is behind the darkness of closed eyes? And immediately, this brilliant light filled my brain, and it began forming into saints and Himalayan yogis. Well, why? Because they're one with the light. When he was, his consciousness was filled with light, he could see those beings that were in the light, just as remembered later on in autobiography, when Sri Yukteswar walks into Lahiri Mahashaya's room, and Well, Harry, of course, always had that little enigmatic smile, but he said, didn't you see who was standing by the door? And it was Babaji, but he couldn't see him because he said, your mind, and Babaji said, I was hiding behind the sunbeams, but your mind was too restless. Think about it. Is Babaji in this room right now? Is Master in this room right now? I would say yes. Because when two or more are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. But we can't see them yet. But little by little, we feel them. And little by little, we gain confidence that they're always with us. And then, when Master had that vision of the Himalayan yogis, then it just became this ever-expanding light. And the light spoke to him. See, the light is conscious, it's it's animated, it isn't just impersonal. And the light said, I am Ishwara, I am light. Well, in a footnote of the autobiography, do you know what Ishwara means? Some of us have the name. Ishwara is from the Sanskrit root, meaning to rule. He is saying, I am the ruler, I am light. I am the ruler of the universe. I created, this universe was created from me, from light. Ishwara is light. Light is the ruler. And then he goes on to say, and this is very interesting, again, theme that runs throughout a biography. I, Master says, as a little boy, hearing that voice, he said, I understood that all of creation is formed of light, and that light is bliss. And so we, that's why, you know, traditional religion says, oh, don't do this and don't do that, and this won't make you happy, and that won't make you happy. Well, they have it sort of right, but why? It won't make you happy because in and of itself, the things of the world, the things of the senses, they're not real. And so how can they give you lasting happiness? Whereas the light, which is bliss itself, brings you a direct experience of hap- of joy, of bliss. I wish it was easier, but it's not. And as Master says elsewhere, if it were not for the prod of suffering, we would not seek a higher world. So we have to reach for this goal and have it be valueless. We have to strive for that achievement and have it not be what we had hoped until we finally get to the point where we say, okay, have it your way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tired of knocking my head against the wall. Show me what will bring me true happiness. And then, of course, we come to the chapter in Autobiography of a Yogi, An Experience in Cosmic Consciousness, which is one of the Pivotal chapters in that great work. And, you know, and again, this is encouraging to all of us. Master's trying to meditate. And uh, his great guru, Sri Teshwar calls him now, Mukunda! And he doesn't, he's, well, I'm trying to meditate. <laughs> How many times have you done that? You know, someone, the phone rings, well, I'm trying to meditate here. And you're thinking about what you have to do during the day. And, and then he calls again. He goes, Makunda And he said, I'm meditating, sir. (laughs) I know how you're meditating, with your mind scattered like leaves in the wind. Well, there we all are. And he said, come here. And so rather shamefacedly, he comes, taps him on the chest. It was that moment. But you know what? It It wasn't just his moment. It's your moment and my moment. Because in that, when we read about it, someday that will happen and we have to cling to that reality. This is what I want. When the guru, whether in the body or not, taps us on the chest and says, and we have the experience of cosmic consciousness. And Master said, I realized that the Lord was limitless bliss and his body was countless tissues of light light and bliss. That's what he realized. Not the fluctuations of this world. And then when he wrote this poem, Samadhi, to try to describe it. And you know, this is not an easy thing to do, but Master said we should try to memorize that poem and repeat it regularly. I memorized it decades ago. I don't like to say the number anymore, (laughs) but... And I I repeat it regularly. And I go deeper and deeper with it. It's not just words. It becomes like a bridge. A bridge to where Master resides. And one of the very first lines of it, Vanish the veils of light and shade. Light and shade. That's the duality of this world. Gone every vapor of sorrow. And then later on, towards the end of that poem, he said, Vanished all grosser lights, the world of duality, into eternal rays of all-pervading bliss. Bliss and light, beyond duality, the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness comprehends it not. That's what Master is sharing with us. And why he tells us of it. Not just, he, he didn't need to write autobiography of a yogi, but he did it for us so that we can say there's a goal, maybe I'm not there yet, but that's where I'm headed. We had a friend, I mentioned this recently, who lives in Portland community, I won't say his name, but we were talking with him once and he said, You know, I do my best to be on the path. Maybe all the devotees of Master are like all runners in a race. Maybe I'm the very end of the tail end of that troop, but I'm still running. And I thought, good for you. And my friend, if you're watching, I know you still are running. So these themes are found in autobiography. Light and bliss beyond the forms of this world, the underlying reality of those qualities. And then as we've been speaking, it's the sadhana that enables us to perceive the subtler realities, both within and without. That's the whole purpose. It's not about, sometimes people, it's a sort of well, it's a kind of mentality that people like, a certain kind of people like things, very, very technically described. Okay, how, when I'm doing kriya for, I know not everyone has kriya, but how uh, th- wide should I visualize that two of up the spine? Four inches? Six inches? And when people ask us that question, I just think, my dear friend, you need to get beyond techniques. You need to just feel God's loving presence, and try to feel a flow of energy. and when, But when we get to sadhana, yes, we have to get the techniques right. I'm not saying we ignore them, or ad lib, or improvise. No. Swami Kriyananda, who was an extraordinarily creative person, he said, you know, I like to be creative in everything I do. But with master's techniques and teachings, I'm absolutely orthodox. I never vary, because I know he knew what he was talking about. In fact, when we were in India uh, a few years ago, Dhyana and Jatish and I went to visit uh, a dear friend of Swami's who passed away this year in Duban. And he said when Swami was in India, this was in uh, after Master Pass, so it was in the late 1950s, um, he went to see... A, he went to get darshan from another saint, um, Swami Muktananda was, if you know who he is. And Muktananda, he was, he had a different teaching, and he said to Swamiji, your guru teaches the mantra Hongsa. That isn't correct. No, it shouldn't be Hongsa. And Swami didn't know what to say. This was this very high saint, supposedly, but he quietly laughed. He didn't want to be around that anymore. And, and then he there was, and our friend Indu told this story, he flew directly back to Delhi, where he was staying, and he, he called up to Indu, he was staying with Indu and his mother, and uh, he said there was a, a Vedic scholar, Swami Narayan, who knew, who had a photographic memory, and he knew All of the teachings passed from long ago and, and Swami was in a cab, and he called out to Indu, Indu, we must go to talk to Swami, Narayan Swami. And, he, and Indu said, well, come in first. You've been traveling. No, I'm not getting out of the cab until I get this settled. And so Indu said, fine, fine, fine. And so then they went over to Narayan Swami's house, and he must have been playful. He saw the Swami was so intense. You have to tell me, you have to tell me. Is it Hong saw the true mantra? And... And Narayan Swami said, "Oh, let's have some tea," and, and Swami didn't want to have tea in that video. Okay, he said, no, you must be hungry. Let's have some lunch." And Swami was just about jumping out of his skin. And then finally, Narayan Swami had this vast room filled with books, books, floor to ceiling, and he knew every page and every one of them. And he said to his assistant, "See on the." Fifth shelf, five levels up, 20th book from the left. Pick out that book, open it to page 26. He did, opened it up. The true mantra is Hong Sa. That's all Swami needed. But I'm tearing this story just to say how important orthodoxy to the techniques are. But understanding that the techniques, we don't stop with the techniques. Master said, doing Kriya, for example, is like preparing the food, but sitting in the silence afterwards is eating the dish. Don't forget that. I have forgotten it for too long. That, you know, I look at my, how much time do I have? Okay, I'll do my Kriya. Okay, now I go. You're missing the whole point. Why even do Kriya if you're going to jump up and not feel the energy from it? So be sure to give yourself time to experience inner realities after you finish the techniques. So then, Jyotish touched on some of the different techniques. There aren't that many. But, energization. Let's just focus on the prayer that we do before energization. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, recharge my body with Thy cosmic energy. My mind with thy concentration, and my soul with thy ever new joy. That's the whole purpose of energization right there. If you get the prayer right with concentration, you'll get the exercises right. And not worry, should your wrist be turned this way or that way? That is not that important. But So what is it? Cosmic energy, concentration, magnetism, willpower, And then bliss. It's the same formula. Drawing the energy which is light, concentrating it, feeling the bliss. That's the point of the energization. And if you get that right, meditation, you'll get the deeper aspect of meditation. Now Hong Sa, Jyotish talked about it, but there's also a wonderful quote that I want to read. And this is... um, after Master has the experience of cosmic consciousness, and he says, the breath and restless mind were like storms which lashed the ocean of light into material form. No perception of the infinite as one light could be had except by calming these storms. The breath and and the restless mind. That's what we do with Hong Sa. And if we can still the mind, then we can have the perception of God as the one light. And there's a beautiful passage I also want to read from autobiography. And this leads us to the concept that there is the light and dark, or not leads us, but amplifies the concept that there is the light and dark of this world, but then there is the light that shines in the darkness. And this is at the very end of, again, another pivotal chapter, The Law of Miracles, where Master, you know, Swami said he could be with any group of people. He could be with a group of doctors. And he by tuning in He could tune into medical science and the subtlety of it. He could be with artists and tune into them. Well, in this chapter, he tunes into the consciousness of theoretical physicists. And you read it and you think, this man so filled with devotion and love and simplicity, how could he write this chapter? But he just tuned in to the consciousness of physicists. And the point of the whole chapter is to prove, and he says, if it must be from science, so be it, that man realizes that light is the only reality. So this, I'll just read this passage where at the end of this chapter, The Law of Miracles, where Master has been in a movie theater, and he's been seeing, (laughs) you already know the the passage, it's nice to have people here who are with you, <laughs> um, where he's been watching a film re- newsreel of the horrors and the suffering of on the battlefields in France during World War I. And he's just feeling so anguished to see the struggle and the pain. And then, this is where I'll begin reading, a gentle voice spoke to my inner consciousness. Look intently. You will see that these scenes, now being enacted in France, are nothing but a play of chiaroscuro. That's light and shadow. They're the cosmic motion picture, as real and as unreal as the theater newsreel you have just seen, a play within a play, My heart was still not comforted. The divine voice went on. Creation is light and shadow both, else no picture is possible. The good and evil of Maya must ever alternate in supremacy. If joy were ceaseless here in this world, would man ever seek another? Without suffering, he scarcely cares to recall that which he has forsaken his, that he would scarcely recall that he has forsaken his eternal home. Pain is a prod to remembrance. The way of escape is through wisdom. The tragedy of death is unreal. Those who shudder at it are like an ignorant actor who dies of fright on the stage when nothing more is fired at him than a blank cartridge." My sons and daughters are children of light. They will not sleep forever in delusion. Then he goes on. As I finished writing this chapter, I sat on my bed in the lotus posture. My room was dimly lit lit by two shaded lamps. Lifting my gaze, I noticed that the ceiling was dotted with small mustard-colored lights scintillating and quivering with a radium-like luster. Myriads of penciled rays, like sheets of rain, gathered into a transparent shaft and poured silently upon me. At once, my physical body lost its grossness and became metamorphosed into astral texture. I felt a floating sensation as, barely touching the bed, The weightless body shifted slightly and alternately to the left and right. I looked around the room. The furniture and walls were as usual, but the little mass of light had so multiplied that the ceiling was invisible. I was wonderstruck. This is the cosmic motion picture mechanism. A voice spoke as though from within the light. Shedding its beam on the white screen of your bed sheets, it is producing the picture of your body. Behold, your form is nothing but light. That's who we are. And then we come, and we'll talk about this more on Friday, the technique of Kriya Yoga to bring, to open the spiritual eye, And hearkening back to the scriptures, it says in Matthew, quoting Christ, If thine eye be single, thy whole body will be filled with light. And our job is to awaken the astral energy within us to open that spiritual eye. And if that's what it means, if thy eye be single. Doesn't mean if you have, there's different translations by people who don't understand the mystical meaning of it. But when our eye becomes single, that energy, just as Jyotish read that passage, the astral brain at the thousand petal lotus, it feeds the rest of the body, it feeds all those chakras. And so the practice of Kriya is our bridge from the material world to the world of light. And when we open up our inner eye, the beauty of this world, the beauty of other people, all we do, as Master said, I see you all as beings of light. You have no idea how beautiful you are. And so, my friends, these great ones who are with us today and always, they're guiding us, calling us, into the light. Let us run forth with all that we are and all that we have and say, Lord, I am coming into thy light. God bless you. Before we take our, we'll have a little break and then we'll meditate. But I want to invite Swami Dhyana to come up, if you would. She's one of the leaders of our work in India. And she and I, Swami Jaya. And more than that, she's been our sole friend for many decades. We've served all over the world together and had many, many adventures. Someday we should write a book. <laughs> the, the children of white go on adventures. And um, she's leaving right after this to return to India. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank her for coming. And maybe we can all stand and chant Om and send our love and blessings to Diana for her safe journey She's doing a remarkable job of spreading master's teachings in India. And she comes here, and she looks like a, a quiet person, but believe me, she's not. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so let's chant on and send Diana our love and our blessing. Ooh. Thank you all. I've enjoyed the quiet. (laughs) Okay, we'll have a little break now, but leave quietly because some people like to stay and meditate, and then we'll start our meditation at noon.